Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. Today we're uh, going to dive into some listener mail. And, uh, you know, we have we actually have two different Carney the Mailbots here to help us today. Uh, the, the one on the left here is just bright silver, gleaming like a suit of armor from the movie Excalibur. <laughs> and then uh, the, the one on the right resembles a, like a, a rusty death bucket. Like a suit of armor from Monty Python and the Holy Grail. Yeah, yeah that's pretty much what he looks like. Uh, well, how, how did, did, did we get two Carnies in these two different states? Well, it's because we did that massive upgrade on Carney. You know, we, uh, we started replacing some of his parts, um, upgrading a part here, a part there, and then we just kept doing it. And then uh, on the other end, we, when we were done, the used parts, we just started assembling those as well until we had two complete Carnies. The Carney in which we'd replaced every last piece with a new shiny piece, and then the Carney that we built out of the old pieces. Now, the question is, which Carney is going to deliver us this week's listener mail? <laughs> I'm just going to close my eyes and put my hand out and, um, and I guess hope that I don't get uh, pricked by the rusty one uh, just because I'm not sure my tetanus shots are up to date. Uh, Fun fact, rust does not cause tetanus. Does it not? Well, there you go. So it's okay that he has razor-sharp rusty claws. It's a-okay. Right? All right. Now, unfortunately, no matter what, we never have time to read all of the great listener mail we get. So if you've sent us a message and we haven't been able to respond and you don't hear it on the show today, please please don't be discouraged. It's not because we don't appreciate the mail we get. There's, there's just a lot of great stuff out there and, and no time to attend to it all. But we really do appreciate all the wonderful communiques we get from you lovely people out there. Yeah, because even though we have twice the Carney now, we only still have the two of us. So there's only so much we can do. And there's only so much time. That's right. Let's jump right in, Robert. All right, let's do it. I'm going to put out my hand. It looks like uh, Shiny Carney is bringing me uh, something to read here. All right, this one comes to us from Alex. Alex says, hi, Robert and Joe. Your podcast is wonderful, and although it was already very good to begin with, I feel you two are getting even better and better. Oh, Yeah, because we, we keep replacing parts. That's what's <laughs> happening. Uh, keep up the great work. We're big fans. I have a comment about the Ship of Theseus episode. I'm a particle physicist by training, so I was thinking uh, about your discussion a bit from that perspective. I don't claim to have any definite answers, but I think the theory of quantum mechanics adds more depth and weirdness to the problem of identity on top of what you've already discussed. In quantum mechanics, different particles of the same type are treated as truly indistinguishable. Two particles can be separated in space, but in the theory, they are described by one wave function, which simply features a high probability to find a particle in region A, as well as a high probability to find a particle in region B, with no mention that it's particle Alice here and that it's particle Bob there. My tentative takeaway is this. If a quantum teleportation machine were to transfer the quantum state of the atoms in my body sitting in place A onto a stream of photons and then transfer that onto atoms in a place B a mile away, I don't see a real justification to treat the newly created atoms a mile away as anything other than truly the parts of my own body which have been moved there. I still feel a bit queasy to hand over my fate to this machine, but rationally, (laughs) 
I'd love to hear a discussion of these quantum physics aspects of the ship of Theseus, Theseus sometime. Cheers, Alex. Now, that is an interesting question because there, there's this obvious preference people have that like, oh, if I'm going to be teleported and it'll still be me, I want the particles that originally made my body to be the same particles that make up the copy of me. Now, that's if you're teleporting information about your body from one place to another, that's just probably not going to be the case, right? You're going to have to build from different particles. And Alex is saying, why would that really make a difference? I don't know if that really would make a difference. I would think that the problem would be the interruption of the continuous existence of you from during that moment of transition. Basically what I said before where you, you just need somebody to lie to you about that interruption. Mm-hmm. You know, you need somebody to just uh, to, to gloss over the more problematic details of your teleportation system. So I think you said this before. You'd rather live in a world where people are teleporting. They are just actually dying every time they do it, but nobody knows it. Well, but but you, I guess the positive spin is you're not only dying, you're being reborn. I mean, this is kind of what <laughs> uh, what uh, what Seth Brundle uh, was talking about in Cronenberg's The Fly. The idea that it's it's like there's a purifying aspect to the teleportation. Uh, I believe this was some of what he was talking about before things began going terribly wrong uh, for him, uh, you know, mixing his DNA with uh, with that of a fly. But is being reborn worthwhile if you don't know you're being reborn? Say, for example, people say, mm-hmm. you know, I'd love to be able to go back and start over my life again, to do it right this time. But if you were to go back and start over without the memory of your previous life, how would anything – why would that be any better? Why would that change anything? It seems like the value of being reborn is the knowledge of what came before and the knowledge that you have been reborn. Or just the idea that you've been reborn. <laughs> I mean somebody could just uh, fool you into thinking teleportation is possible. Uh, you walk into a box, there's some lights, you walk out of the box. But if you feel renewed, right, <laughs> then it could have an overall positive effect. Speaking of Cronenberg, uh, I, I don't know if you've read about this as well, but supposedly – uh, David Cronenberg has has a screenplay that he wrote that is a sequel to The Fly that doesn't necessarily contain any monsters. That's more about it's I, I don't know that there are any more additional details out there, but it it is more concerned with teleportation itself than it is with any kind of monstrous side effects of the technology. Oh, I think you could write a great psychological horror movie purely about teleportation without any like DNA fusion or you know becoming half fly or anything like that. Yeah, it's it's one of my hopes that either Cronenberg will get to direct that script or somebody will one day direct that script. I'm very interested um, what he's exploring in that because because we're also talking about later day Cronenberg. Mm-hmm. Uh, Cronenberg who hasn't really been dipping his toes into the uh, the, the, the 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 squeamish horror content of his his earlier filmography. So the more recent Cronenberg version, it's just got a bunch of like mafia guys who get into a teleporter <laughs> together and they come out having an existential crisis. Oh, I'd, I'd probably be down for that. Uh, you know, I, I do love so many of the, like, the transcendent ideas that were at least briefly discussed in The Fly, like the idea towards the end that not only is he going to cure himself by climbing into the telepod uh, with Gina Davis's character, you know, but they will become one perfect being. You know that there's this this fusion that will take place uh, that will create a you know a, a higher human. Yeah, and that embodies some of the questions, I guess, about the whole teleportation idea. Like to him, that's an idea of like addition or or becoming better, and to her, that's obviously an idea of obliteration or destruction. Yeah. 
Okay, also about the ship of Theseus, this comes to us from our listener, Anne. Anne writes, Hi, Robert and Joe. I'm a longtime listener of your show and am writing in to respond to your great episode on the ship of Theseus. I'd never heard of the mythic iteration of this concept, but I'm familiar with it from the romantic poets of England. I wouldn't be surprised if they built off of it from some of the philosophers you mentioned, including Hobbes. In a September 1819 letter to his brother and sister-in-law, John Keats, that's the romantic poet, John Keats takes a personal and religious approach to the question. I've included the excerpt here. Quote, From the time you left me, our friends say I have altered completely, am not the same person. Perhaps in this letter I am, for in a letter one takes up one's existence from the time we last met. I dare say you have altered also. Every man does. Our bodies every seven years are completely fresh materialed. Seven years ago, it was not this hand that clinched itself against Hammond. We are like the relict garments of a saint, the same and not the same, for the careful monks patch it and patch it for St. Anthony's shirt. Ooh, that's nice. Well, yeah, I like that that brings in, and I, so if you believe, for example, that an item can be holy— Mm-hmm. That's another question about identity. Imagine you say you believe uh, in like a piece of the true cross or something, one of these medieval relics, and it's gradually losing splinters but having splinters replaced by people who are working on it. Once the entire thing has been replaced, it does it still have holy power. Well, this is why you notice it uh, in the, some of the museums that you go to. There'll be a tiny vial of vampire blood uh, <laughs> inside the temperature control compartment with it so they can see just how holy the artifact uh, still is. That'd be a good test. Yeah. And continues. I love that this section gets into different layers of identity, both the one self-reported and or time-traveled to, e.g., quote, taking up one's existence from the time we last met, unquote. And also the one created by others, as in the monks reconstructing the relic, ironically in trying to preserve the original. This also touches on the biological transformation that you mentioned in the podcast, the 7 to 10-year recreation of the cells in the body. As for identity being defined by the static reality of an object or its constant evolution in a process, Shelley weighs in with a poem called Mutability, which concludes on the following stanzas. So this is Percy Bysshe Shelley. We rest, a dream has power to poison sleep. We rise, one wandering thought pollutes the day. We feel, conceive, or reason, laugh, or weep, embrace fond woe, or cast our cares away. It is the same, for, be it joy or sorrow, the path of its departure still is free. Man's yesterday may ne'er be like his morrow. Naught may endure but mutability." To me, that embodies very much the the idea of uh, the the Heraclitus type idea, Pantarei. Everything flows; it's all flux; it's all change. Uh, but Anne continues, while he's maybe talking more about emotional states here than comprehensive identity, the final thought of the poem sides with the argument that existence is defined by transformation, which brings up the question of whether or not change itself can be defined as a constant. Anyways, just some tie-ins from yet another realm. I love your show and the curious exuberance with which it addresses these potentially terrifying existential questions. Thanks a lot. Thanks for a lot of great listening. Sincerely, Anne. Thank you so much, Anne. I always love when people come at us with poetry. Yes, and I particularly like the the specimens that uh, she presented us with, with there. Uh, I, I want to skip to another uh, bit of listener mail here uh, that came to us about the ship of Theseus, and this came to us from Diana. 
Diana writes, hi, Robert and Joe. I've been listening for a while, sometimes by myself, sometimes with the kids. Recently, my seven-year-old daughter and I were listening to the Ship of Theseus episode, and I thought I'd ask her the question, if you had a toy and replaced all the parts of that toy with new, different parts, would it be the same toy? Her unequivocal answer was yes. When I asked why it would be the same and not different, her response was because it's the same toy. (laughs) The new parts don't make it different. Yeah, so there you go. From the mouths of babes. Love the show. Diana. I really like this, uh, this, this email because it, it reminds me of the, the, the whole scenario of, the, the, of replacing a lost toy, which is something that uh, I imagine a number of you have experienced as a child or perhaps you've, you've played a part in the scenario as a parent. But obviously when you replace a toy, especially if it's a stuffed animal, the replacement can often look just like a completely different species compared uh, to the, like the worn-out thing that you had to replace, you mm-hmm. know? Uh, like it becomes the, essentially the, the rusty carny. Like the rusty carny <laughs> is the one you love, and then when you, you're presented with this brand-new, untarnished carny, you're like, that's not carny. You know, that's not, uh, you know, uh, Socks the Bear. Socks the Bear has only one eye, and his uh, his fur isn't, uh, you know, bright and fluffy. It's it's matted and gray. Like, it's the wear and the tear that w- that, that is a, that is part and partial to the identity of the thing. But it sounds like Diana's child is saying maybe that it's not, right? That, like, even if you do replace all of the body parts of Socks the Bear with newer, fresher body parts, it's the same bear. Yeah, so maybe this is just, uh, this is just me, like, looking back on childhood experiences and, you know, and, and, and looking at my, my own child's experiences through the, the eyes of a parent. Yeah, maybe that ultimately doesn't matter to the kid. They're like, yeah, Socks is great now. Look at him. He's, 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 he's doing great. He's, he's wonderful. He looks like he's brand new. Exactly what I wanted. You know, with the kind of uh, uh, unreality of childhood, the kind of hallucinatory quality of, of the mm-hmm. child's uh, view of the world, I can almost imagine that I could have been a little kid and had some of my toys replaced with clearly newer versions of themselves. And I wonder if I would have noticed or if I would have thought anything was unusual uh, or if I just would have thought, hey, it's, you know, it's even better now. Well, sometimes the function would be improved, right? Like, yeah. like I remember having two Boba Fetts. There was the original Boba Fett that uh, I, I played with so much that he couldn't stand up anymore. Mm-hmm. Like his his limited joints were just they would just swivel around, so he could only like lay down. That was it. Or you know, he could fly through the air, I guess. But it was only the newer Boba Fett that could actually stand upright, which was more important. I think ultimately standing upright was more important. The floppy Boba Fett was had limited usage. Okay, here's one from our listener and frequent contributor, Jim, writing also about the ship of Theseus. Jim writes, Robert and Joe, one can visit a real-life ship of Theseus in Boston, the USS Constitution, Old Ironsides. She is the oldest commissioned naval vessel still afloat. She makes at least one, quote, turnaround trip in the Boston Harbor every year where they take her out and dock her back again in the opposite side for even more wear and tear while docked. I was in Boston in the early 1990s where she was under major renovations. She was barely a hull and timbers from what I remember. About a dozen years later, I visited again when she was fully restored and beautiful. I asked our guide on the tour how much of the ship was original. He said about 15% is original, mostly below the waterline. He then motioned toward the bow of the ship toward the sick deck. I don't know what a sick deck is. Anyway, sick deck and said, quote, Do you see those brass nuts and bolts in the bulkhead? They were made by Paul Revere. 
I was impressed. Huh. <laughs> um, he mentions that Malcolm Gladwell talked about the ship of Theseus in an episode of the Revisionist History podcast. Yes, and uh, I do remember to li- I do remember listening to that one now. I believe he was. Uh, I believe this was the the golf episode. Yeah, he explains it. So Jim writes, this was an episode about golf courses on California. Uh, California property taxes are based upon the value of your property when you purchased it, not on current value. This was to prevent retired couples who owned their houses from being forced to move due to taxes when the value of their homes skyrocketed. But what about the golf country club? Who owns them? They are owned by the members, much like the members of a credit union. But when does membership change so as to recalculate the tax? The tax regulators determined that an individual member leaving or joining was not enough to not enough of a change to trigger a new property value. Therefore, the golf courses are taxed at their property values from decades ago, even if the entire membership from those original days has completely turned over. Given this logic, the thesis Country Club never changes its ownership, especially for tax purposes, even if the entire membership turns over multiple times over the decades. And then he also has a, a PS with some Star Trek transporter issues. I don't know. We could get into those. Maybe, maybe not. Sure. I'm, I'm, I'm positive that um, our, uh, our producer, Alex, would, uh, would, would, would prefer that we get into these teleportation issues from Trek. So Jim writes, in the old show, some sort of cosmic dust causes Kirk to reassemble twice on the transporter. He was split into good and evil. It was their Jekyll and Hyde homage. Yeah. In the next generation, Riker is found stranded as an outcast on a wasteland of a planet. But hasn't he been on the Enterprise for years? He had been on the barren planet when with a previous ship before the next generation started. When beamed up from the previous assignment, his signal was split by something in the atmosphere. One copy materialized on his ship. The other bounced back to the surface of the planet where he rematerialized, but no one knew. The stranded Riker wasn't too pleased that no one had come looking for him. Oh, man. What if that just happened? It turns out it just happens all the time. Like, uh-huh. like one out of every five teleportations in Star Trek ends up shooting a random copy of you either to the surface of a, of a deserted planet or, you know, or, uh, you know, into the walls. It is a galaxy full of, like, <laughs> Kirks and the, you know, the red shirt away parties. <laughs> now, this next one he mentions is one of the episodes I remember the most uh, from watching Star Trek The Next Generation uh, as a kid. And yet I I totally forgot about this whole, uh, uh, you know, teleportation ship of Theseus angle. Right. Jim writes, in The Next Generation, the Dyson Sphere episode, we meet Mr. Scott from the old show, but he hasn't aged from the movies, which took place decades previously. How? He had put himself into a form of stasis, I don't remember exactly why, which placed him in an infinite disassemble slash assemble cycle, basically freezing time until he was found. Huh. Yeah, see, I forgot all about that. All I Because it's, it's a pretty distracting aspect of that episode that there is a <laughs> Dyson sphere. And if you, you were like me, you've never encountered that concept before. It was pretty mind-blowing, uh, enough so that it uh, overshadowed uh, the sort of uh, glitching uh, uh, teleporter uh, mishaps of, uh, of, uh, of uh, Dr. Scott here. Uh, Mr. Scott, I Is believe. it Mr. Scott? See, I was never a classic Trek guy. I'm not sure what his credentials are. I've been I've been lashed by our fans enough about not having sufficient Trek knowledge. General and, Scott. That's correct. <laughs> that's correct. Admiral Dr. Scott DDS. 
Um, one last note. In Voyager, two characters' information was mixed somehow. It wasn't a 50-50 mix. It was more like a 60-40 mix. In both cases, the 60% personality wasn't too keen on sharing their bodies with the other 40%. I only saw this episode once, and when it originally aired, I think the two characters were male and female. I have a memory that they cast two different actors to play each so as to make the fusion even more realistic. Oh, nice. Uh, you know, I don't usually think a Star Trek is realistic, but... Uh, well, it explored a lot of territory. I will say this. Uh, I am definitely pro-Star Trek, especially Next Generation and Deep Space Nine, uh, and I'm not really a fan of golf. Uh, so I will say... <laughs> Check out Star Trek uh, by all means, but also check out that Malcolm Gladwell a revisionist history episode about golf. He he promises at the beginning that he says that he hates golf, and that by end by the end of the episode, he hopes that he thinks that you'll hate golf as well. Uh, and and I I think I did hate golf even more uh, after listening to that episode. It's a great podcast. It just fills you with uh, insightful rage. <laughs> It's great for road trips. Okay, maybe we should look at a couple more Shipathesius mails. All right, here's another one. This one comes to us from Marcos. Love your podcast. I have to say it's my favorite way of passing time on my commute. The conversation and conjecture turn a mundane daily trip into a timeless voyage. Aww. I was voyaging on your Ship of Theseus episode when it occurred to me that our Constitution, uh, by, by this he means the, the, the U.S. Constitution, uh, has in a way become a document of Theseus. The words like planks have warped and rotted in a way and have been replaced each generation by new interpretations of the same letters. It's as if each year a plank is removed, studied, uh, whittled, and placed back so that the same ship is now one of immense complexity and context. Even a strict structuralist interpretation fills the same words with more subtlety and complexity than the original carpenters ever did. I'm also thinking that the physical USS Constitution uh, might embody an actual example of a true modern ship of Theseus. It's an interesting parallel. Thanks for adding insight to my otherwise absent drive. Oh, another reference to the old Ironsides. Yeah. But this is interesting about the document because, uh, I mean, obviously – Exactly this kind of question comes up in judicial philosophy, right? Mm -hmm. You know, judges are trying to interpret how should the constitution applies to laws we write today and it's a tricky task because the constitution was written a long time ago and not anticipating all kinds of stuff that's come up since then. Right. Do you say that the Constitution embodies what the spirit of people expressing the same sentiments would probably be saying today? Or should we just try to pretend somebody wrote these words yesterday and read them to mean exactly what they should literally mean in our usage? Or uh, sh should, it, should we look to the letters of the people who wrote it and see, you know, what did they really mean when they wrote this? That's complicated enough without getting into the various agendas – uh, that would influence one uh, in, in, in various interpretations. Oh, sure, of course. I guess that's taking the idea of judicial philosophy at face value, which, you know, obviously there's some judicial philosophy that's probably just motivated reasoning for people's own personal politics. You know, speaking of, uh, of politicians, I mean, something like the, 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 the Senate is, uh, is kind of like a ship of thesis as well, right? Oh, yeah. We're always swapping out uh, new parts for the old parts. Uh, and they are, a lot of the parts are rather old. Um, but if we were to replace half the members of the U.S. Senate with, say, amphibians, uh, it would still be the Senate, even though it would have uh, far more amphibians than it currently has. Mr. Toad goes to Washington. There you go. Well, at this point, I feel like we should take a break and then come back and tackle some more listener mail. All right, we're back. 
Okay, this next one comes to us from our listener, Ian. It concerns viruses. Hi there. I only discovered your podcast a couple of months ago, and I don't know how I coped without it. I'm a microscopist. I spend much of my day working in the dark alone and trying not to move much. But that does mean I get three or four hours a day to listen to podcasts, and I get to see things that nobody else ever has. Have you ever thought about doing an episode on viruses? If we have school trips in at work or it's just a quiet day, we go virus spotting in the pond outside the lab and the results are absolutely staggering. Hardly anyone realizes the extent of viruses in the world. They outnumber us. In fact, they outnumber every living cell on the planet and they're a major driving force of evolution, not just through selection pressure, but the vast scale of cross-species gene swapping they facilitate. 800 million viruses land on every square meter of our planet's surface every day. There are around 10 to the 8 in every milliliter of seawater, more than that in our pond. They're reckoned to kill a third of every cell in the ocean every day. If that's not mind-blowing enough, we found giant viruses in the drip tray of a water cooler. This dude, and, and Ian attaches a picture, is 500 nanometers across and lives in our coffee room. And there is a suitably evil-looking metal album cover here. It's kind of this uh, this whirling void of a hexagon in a gray background. It, it's kind of Lovecraftian. It's inviting me into the dark with it. <laughs> it does kind of, it has a kind of a black hole feeling to it for sure. Yeah. Ian continues, if you're ever in the UK, drop us a line and we'll let you drive an electron microscope. Keep the episodes coming. My coffee st- strained brain depends on it. Cheers. <laughs> Ian. Uh, well, thank you so much, Ian. We, I don't know if we'll ever get to test drive an electron microscope with you, but it sounds fun. And actually, uh, we, I think, have talked about doing an episode on, on viruses. Uh, we have both um, the organism and uh, we, we've talked about uh, computer viruses as well. It's, it's been a long time since I've looked at this, but I remember there being some interesting um, parallel questions one can ask about viruses and computer viruses and uh, their, their status – uh, as, as as living entities. All right, here's another piece of listener mail that comes to us. Uh, this this one uh, has to do with our episode on teasing that uh, that recently came out, where we talked about this curious phenomenon of uh, of of of, uh, of human interaction uh, that is often you know difficult to 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 make sense of, and also difficult to figure out like what is uh, what is playful teasing and what is uh, harmful teasing. So this one comes to us from Rachel. Quote, I just finished listening to your excellent episode on teasing. That's not meant in an ironic way. I actually did think it was an excellent episode. The line between teasing and bullying can be so blurry. I was teased and bullied a lot as a kid, so I identified a great deal with what you were saying. I wondered what your research revealed, uh, if it touched on it all, about the roast of certain prominent individuals such as comedians or politicians. Since this ritualized form of socially acceptable teasing can be quite mean-spirited at times. I loved your mention also of teasing uh, through the pet. We do this a lot at our house. We have a cat. Our dog recently passed, and she is often the butt of jokes that simultaneously earn her a lot of attention. My husband might be holding the cat in an awkward way that really displays how big she is or exposes her belly and says something like, quote, getting a bit plump there, slippers. Her name is George, and she's a tortoise shell. Uh, I might also, and I might also respond with something like, if she keeps eating all her food and treats like a good girl, we might even be able to get a pair of gloves out of her, too. We'll get her nice and tubby yet. <laughs> 
I'm also certain she is trying to kill me. I tell people I'm certain she is a reincarnated mafia princess, and she's basically held under the same business model. She is a homicidal sociopath with a mafia-style flair for vengeance. She's a great foil for when I stumble into something on my own. I can always blame it on her. Sometimes if she is stretched out in one of her more hedonistic poses on some particularly posh uh, perch, like a fresh uh, laundered or folded comforter, one of us will express the concern that she may not be getting enough rest. (laughs) Probably far too much about our cat, but I am home all day with her. She is the subject of much teasing. Uh, I look forward to your next cast. Keep them coming. Uh, You keep me sane at work. This is very familiar kind of pet roasting. Mm -hmm. uh, Yeah. Um, what is it that's so fun about roasting a pet? You you don't dislike your pet. You like your pet a lot, but it's really fun to make fun of them. Yeah, I don't know. It 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 really keeps their status in check. You know, like they, <laughs> no matter how uh, how how pompous or, or loud they may be. Now, as for the 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 roasting culture, like the celebrity roast and all, uh, I. I don't remember specifically running across anything, but they, but it might be out there. Uh, it is certainly interesting because it is this. This area of comedy that gets uh, that gets gets very sharp uh, at times, and and can I feel like has a has a tendency to uh, to get a little out of control sometimes. You know what yeah. I'm saying? Um, but then again, it is a very ancient form of comedy. I mean, you go back to uh, the ancient Greeks and like and make making fun of uh, of politicians uh, was was a central uh, aspect of some of our earliest examples of comedy. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I would say if you're going to use harsh, biting mockery, it's good that it's directed at people who are, you know, in high status positions of power. Now, in some cases, though, it is, of course, comedians roasting other comedians. Right. And that may be a special category. Uh, uh, I mean, that, I would be interested to hear from, it'd be interesting to hear from a, a professional comedian, stand-up comedian uh, out there on this topic, because I know there is probably a lot of... Uh, uh, of ribbing going on there on a um, just a regular basis. And a lot of comedy is clearly about pushing boundaries. So right. like how mean can you be in, in roasting is probably one of the boundaries people are going to experiment with. Right. Though certainly at this point, if you agree to be the subject of a celebrity roast, I mean, you know what's in store for you. So. Yeah, you can't complain, I guess. Yeah. But you got to wonder, like, why do people do it? I mean, do they think, well, I'm so great, everybody's going to be nice to me at my roast? <laughs> well, it's in a way, it's kind of like we in that episode we talked about the test of the king, right? Right. If the king can sit there and be a big good sport about it, even when it's vicious, right? Uh, then, uh, then, then the king has kind of passed the test. Also, I think if I remember correctly, and I do, I do not watch uh, any of these uh, celebrity roasts uh, these days, but if I remember correctly. The format usually involves the subject at the very end getting to throw out a few jabs at the the participants as well. So they kind of get the last laugh uh, even though they take most of the punishment. You know, now that we're talking about it, I can actually think that specifically the stuff I've seen that seemed really over the line mean to me at uh, at Celebrity Roast was not directed at the main roastee, but was directed at other people in attendance. Like, yes, like other roasters and celebrity participants that were involved. Yes, that's often the stuff that that seems like just like way over the line. Yeah, because it's like they're not the sanctioned target. Right. This is about this is about Shatner. Keep the attention on Shatner. <laughs> I'm I'm tuning in to watch him be made the fool. The one that I, the ones that I've seen that have been really 
I felt not cool or when they like go after the roasty's spouse or or partner or something. Mm. You know, that happens. Yeah, again, like they're not the target. Like look, I wanna I wanna see the target just absolutely skewered. Like you have you have just almost free range in terms of this individual, but I don't know about these other targets. Uh, I guess I don't make the roast rules, and neither do you. Okay, this one comes to us from our listener, Dean. He introduces himself. He says uh, he's an associate lecturer in psychology and postdoctoral research fellow based in Ireland. And uh, Dean says, quote, My research focus is broadly psychology and education, but I do have that techie twist of how technology influences human behavior. Uh I teach numerous programs focusing on this. I love the podcast and actively encourage my students to listen to it. Oh, thank you. Thank you, Dean. Uh, Dean writes, I finished listening to the on-teasing episode yesterday and couldn't agree more about how teasing quickly turns to bullying. My PhD supervisor is a powerhouse regarding this field, especially alterophobic bullying. And I didn't know what that was, so I looked it up. That's like uh, bullying people based on uh, like subcultures or alternative lifestyles. Okay. Uh, perhaps a study could be done on a species of squirrels here. My own PhD was looking at interpersonal interactions between students and teachers and the role positive educational experiences can play in academic and social outcomes. I'm often asked questions in class about, quote, when does teasing end and bullying start, especially between students and also between staff? And I often reply by saying how it's next to impossible to fully know, not only because interactions between individuals are incredibly subjective – and it would also depend on multiple contextual factors and how the teased or teaser processes the situation. Anyway, like most episodes, this one got me thinking of technological applications and social cues in the digital space. While you mentioned the yellow smiley faces and how emoticons slash emojis support comprehension, how do you feel the concept of disinhibition and the bystander effect would play out in a physical situation and then in a digital situation? They might seem polar opposites in some cases, but then again, maybe not. Thoughts from the hive mind? Once again, love the show. I need to get my hands on some merch and flag it to my students. All the best, Dean. Oh, yeah, that well, merch. It's a great time uh, for us to plug the, the merch store. Uh, if you go to stufftoblowyourmind.com, at the top of the page, <laughs> you'll see a tab uh, for store. You can go there. You can get shirts with our, uh, our cool new logo, logo on it. You can get, uh, what, uh, uh, bags for your laptop. You can get uh, framed art. You can get pillows, stickers to put on your car. Uh, you name it. Listen to the soulless ad, man. <laughs> no, I appreciate Robert saying that so I don't have to. Yeah, yeah. please, merch up uh, yeah, by all means. It's some cool stuff. And it's a great way to support the show if you want to, you know, you want to throw a few bucks to the show. Okay, but back to Dean's message. So Dean asked – I assume Dean here is talking about how we talked about in the episode this idea of you've been there watching teasing turn to bullying. Mm -hmm. Like you've seen it happen and you didn't do anything because you didn't know like should I intervene or would I be making it weird if I did? Is this actually OK? Am I misreading? Like you never really know. It's, it's hard to know when to step in and sort of like become the social police. Right. Yeah, because you don't want to feel like you're a kindergarten teacher. Right. Uh, when you're hanging out with your friends. Yeah. Like don't say that. That's mean. That's mean to Sam. Kyle, say you're sorry to Sam. 
Okay, now you two hug. All right, now we can <laughs> right. go back to talking about movies. Yeah, and maybe maybe you're misreading. Maybe Sam is not actually being bothered, and by stepping in, you are making everybody feel bad. I mean, right. th- there's all this bystander effect going on. You don't know when it's your turn to act, when you should do something. And so Dean is asking about uh, the disinhibition and the bystander effect and how that varies across uh, physical space versus digital space. What do you think about that, Robert? Hmm. Well, I mean, in digital space, it's it's kind of complicated because there's, I mean, undoubtedly, there's so much, there's so much bad stuff going on out there at any given moment. Like, mm-hmm. I'm sure I could go on to say Reddit, and I don't mean to single Reddit out, but I, I'm, I'm, I'm sure I could go on to Reddit right now and find somebody being, uh, you know, somewhat bullying towards another person. I mean, sometimes you don't have much to work with, right? Because mm-hmm. you're just responding to somebody's comments. It's one stranger come, uh, responding to another stranger. Or you see a similar thing play out on on Facebook or Twitter, right? Especially on Facebook where it's someone has their uh, their – their their privacy uh, uh, settings very open, and it's maybe uh, arguments between one uh, like a friend's friends or a friend's relatives and you. Um, I mean, you see it going on, and it just it doesn't necessarily feel like your place to step in. Like I don't know who these people are. I'm not the one to come in. This is clearly clearly somebody knows these people because it's on their Facebook profile they should be the ones to step in and start breaking it up, right? Well, I would say some of the same inhibitions are are at play in digital space like you're talking about. But I think I've observed – I mean maybe you'll disagree. I feel like I've observed people are more likely to step in and play social police in digital space than they are in physical space. Hmm. I mean have you not – like I see people – like like stepping in and, and and saying like okay it's time to intervene in in comment threads on Facebook way way more often than I see that happening in person I never see anything well, like that happening are, in person are, are more likely to be a jerkwad uh, digitally yeah, than they are in true. person as well uh, yeah I guess you guess you're right I mean I'm I'm having trouble thinking the last time I saw somebody being a jerk in person and saw somebody intervene or saw a situation where even I was wondering if someone should intervene. It's been a while. I haven't. It's been a while since I've taken like public transit, for instance. Yeah. Uh, well, yeah. I mean, I I feel like these situations used to happen more back when I was in school and mm-hmm. stuff. Uh, it happens less often as an adult. I just don't see adults bullying each other that often. Well, the other aspect of it too is that in, in physical space. I mean, I do on the yes. internet. Well, 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 I guess one of the the aspects of both scenarios is that in a physical environment there is. Always the possibility, even if it is a, even if it is distant, it's still possible that it could escalate into into a physical altercation, into physical violence. And in a digital scenario, I mean, it, certainly digital arguments can still have real world consequences. Um, they're not com- you know completely removed from it, but it is it's not an immediate step. Like like if uh, if if stranger Kyle and stranger Andrew are engaged in an argument, uh, you know, one's going to have to find out where the other one lives or they're going to have to agree to meet up in a parking lot and fight. Like there are more steps where if it's just two people arguing at a bar or on a street, uh, on, you know, on the sidewalk, then they could conceivably come to blows without uh, too much planning involved. So you think the threat of a punch in the face may actually be a positive influence on our social interactions? Uh, there are some that would argue that, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, well, I mean, another another factor there, though, is that 
you just aren't that often getting into conversations that are covering any kind of potentially sensitive or controversial subject matter with people you don't know very well mm -hmm. in physical space. Right. That kind of thing happens all the time in digital space and almost never happens in physical space. When do you argue politics with a stranger in person? It just doesn't happen. And then when it does, I mean, the the, the cases that come to mind are going to be uh, certainly cases of, say, protest. Yeah. And that is – it's a huge stretch to call the back and forth that's happening there a conversation. It's probably more one side shouting at the other. Right. But you see that kind of thing happening on the internet all the time. And then – so, of course, there's there's plenty of incentive there to just like just show wanton cruelty and to turn it straight over into personal insults and bullying and all that. Hmm. Well, some great food th for thought here from Dean. Uh, we're going to take one more break, and when we come back, uh, we'll crack open a few more listener mails before we close out this episode. All right, we're back, and I can see that our uh, our two robots here are very excited because uh, the next uh, few listener mails we're going to listen to uh, have to do with our 2001 A Space Odyssey episode. Okay, this one comes from listener Eric. Eric writes, Greetings, stuff to blow your mind. Your recent episode, 2001 A Space Odyssey, made me think you might find the following interesting. I was, as far as my research yields, and I could be wrong, one of the last people to conduct a long-form interview with Arthur C. Clarke. Huh. He gave a few long-form interviews in the last five years of his life due to post-polio fatigue syndrome, scandal, his pending knighthood, and general failing health. Conducted while visiting my then-girlfriend in Colombo, Sri Lanka in the summer of 1997. Clark's sole interview condition was that I couldn't sell the interview to a national magazine, but he would allow it to be published in my college's literary magazine. Online publishing didn't effectively exist at the time, of course. Uh, and then he says he did publish it in the college literary magazine. Uh, so picking up, he says, uh, Clark sat behind his desk all the while, atop which were two cutting-edge Macintosh computers, an abacus, various and sundry papers, and a moon rock. And behind his desk stood an 8-by-20-foot wall of books, one half of which consisted of his novels in translation, <laughs> and most of which were hardback. That's, that's a, a regal environment there. Uh-huh. Uh, I spent about two and a half hours with Dr. Clark, as his staff invariably called him, and our meeting ended with he, uh, my girlfriend, Pepsi, which is Clark's one-eyed chihuahua, and I watching eight-millimeter home movies of Clark and Isaac Asimov playing chess. <laughs> this was done in total silence and was admittedly odd. <laughs> But my reason for writing is to say that many of your listeners might be interested in knowing what Clark thought his magnum opus was in science fiction. About an hour into our meeting, I asked him what novel he felt made the greatest mark on science fiction. I expected Clark to name 2001 in spite of its interesting creation in tandem with the screenplay for the film, which you mentioned, as his most important novel given that it canonized him as a science fiction master and made him decidedly world famous. However, when I asked him, he said that his most important novel was The Songs of Distant Earth, a brand new copy of which was then in my backpack, unread. It was the only Clark novel I could find at a local store. All other Clark books were about scuba diving. <laughs> I asked him to sign it. He laughed and said I was being, quote, cheeky and accused me of a setup. Huh. 
He also showed me specs of a space elevator cable and told me two math jokes I didn't understand. In any case, it was a great episode. I thank you for it and for conjuring up some wonderful memories. Thanks, gents, for all you do. What you do makes the world less stupid and more interesting. Uh, yours, Eric. Oh, thank you, Eric. Yeah, and plus that was a fascinating story. A really a, just a delightful <laughs> little story about meeting uh, uh, the author there. Watch me play chess. That's <laughs> that, that has the ring of truth. I don't know – I don't know Eric, so I don't know if he's telling the truth, but I believe him based on that detail. Yes. All right, here's another bit of 2001 uh, uh, listener mail. This one comes to us from uh, Chandler. This is this is our coworker, Chandler. Is it? Oh, yes. Oh, well, the way I know exactly who it's from then. He says, quote, I listened to your 2001 episode the other day and thought it was fantastic. There's one thing I wanted to ask you that perhaps you didn't have time to cover. In your opinion, did Hal make a mistake? Was he actually malfunctioning? When Dave brought back the satellite unit and found nothing wrong with it, Hal's next suggestion was to put it back, let it fail, then find the source of the problem afterwards. This seems like a logical solution, but Dave and Frank planned to shut him down before we ever got to find out if Hal had actually made a mistake or not. And since Hal was given a secret directive to contact the monolith with or without the crew, he felt he needed to remove the humans from the mission. Or did the secret directive itself make Hal malfunction in that the conflicting goals of uh, taking care of the crew and not letting the crew get in the way of his journey to the monolith, uh, did it create an almost a programming paradox that made his brain short circuit. I'm curious to hear your thoughts. Cheers, Chandler. This is an interesting question because it sort of like asks if, do we need to put the responsibility back on the humans for what went wrong in their interactions Mm -hmm. with Hal? Um, So obviously the way most people would read that is, well, Hal starts malfunctioning. There's something wrong with his logic and this leads the like Bowman and Poole to have no choice but to say we've got to shut him down and then Hal reacts negatively to that and everything spirals out of control. What I think Chandler's asking, what if Hal was not malfunctioning? Hal was doing just fine, but Bowman and Poole misread the situation. They go on the offensive against Hal and he just has to defend himself. Yeah, Frank and Dave, they are kind of like, uh, you know, automatons. Once they decide to, to act, they can't be stopped. I mean, they remind me of this concept in a way of the uh, – the the hunter killer AIs the idea that you could have a you could have a specialized AI who's who and their primary goal is to take down a general AI should it uh, emerge or or you know emerge from its the confines of its digital prison mm-hmm. and their only purpose is to just take out that superior AI intelligence in fact I could well imagine a scenario where the the first AI hunter killers are called uh, Dave and Frank for that purpose Bowman yeah I never thought about this before but Bowman in many ways behaves like a Terminator yeah He's kind of like Arnold Schwarzenegger in the first Terminator movie or or even more so kind of like uh, Robert Patrick in Terminator 2. He doesn't have much of a discernible personality and is just very singly focused on achieving goals. One of those major goals, of course, becomes shutting down Hal while Hal begs for mercy. Yeah, he can't be stopped. He can't be reasoned with. And that's what Hal tries to do. He, he essentially tries to reason with him. Uh-huh. Um, and uh, yeah, imagine a future in which, uh, you know, post singularity, of course, uh, the, the 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 machines when they dress up for Halloween, they dress up as Bowman, like he's the new icon of terror. That's a good idea. Costume stores get on that, start selling the suit. Yeah. Uh, another thing that 
Chandler's question brings up, uh, which I think is interesting, is the idea of, um, you know, like whether whether a secret inherently sort of pollutes the nature of of a functional AI from from doing well, right? You know, it, this is I think present, definitely present in the novel, somewhat in the movie. The idea that having a secret secondary objective that must be kept secret from the human operators mm-hmm. is sort of a a, an, a dangerous proposition to start with for an AI, right? Because if like a, an AI has a thing it must do and the human operators can't know about that thing it must do, then they could interfere with its mission without knowing they're interfering with its mission. And thus it could come into conflict with them in a way that it can't even tell them how not to be in its way. And maybe it's also a leap in cognition too far for an artificial intelligence, right? Because it's one thing for it to be able to have this – this uh, you know robust relationship with the crew, uh, you know playing chess with them, engaging in small talk while, while also looking after their every need. But then you add on top of that this necessity for deception. I think teaching computers how to lie is a bad idea. <laughs> is that the secret to preventing the AI from going wrong? Just have a have a like as a prime directive more so than anything else that a computer can never lie to the user. I mean, it, it does remind me of some of uh, some of the ideas that have been uh, that have been brought up. Um, uh, specifically, some of the ideas uh, presented by Max Tegmark in his uh, his book uh, uh, Life Three Point uh, about the idea that we need to make sure that that the, that the the AI that we're developing that these that their goal is to benefit humanity. That, that that is just like part of their uh, you know essentially part part of their, their their core programming, their backbone, their DNA is that they exist to help us and to make a better world and not to uh to fulfill some of these smaller goals these uh um the these finite games that are being played between uh, uh you know nations and companies that's a great point and and to those of you who are saying well yeah obviously i mean that just sounds like an obvious thing that it should be made to benefit humanity that's actually not obvious that's not yeah. obvious to people who are working artificial intelligence you know you might be working on a chatbot program mm-hmm. that there's no reason you have to fear this chatbot program you're working on is going to harm anyone but you're not telling it that it has to benefit humanity I mean, that's not part of your research program. Yeah. At some point, we need to think about that being a core part of any AI research is the benefit of humanity being part of what it does, being sort of the Asimov's rules of robotics that underlies everything it does. Right. Otherwise, you're going to be just going about your business one day and a robot's going to snip your life hose and then you're done. Now, we already mentioned an email from our listener, Jim, today. Jim also wrote us about 2001, and uh, we're not going to read a whole other email from him, but just to mention a couple of interesting points he made in his email about 2001 A Space Odyssey, uh, he mentions uh, that the, quote, bone-to-satellite cut in the movie, so that's when uh, Moongazer throws the bone up in the air and then oh, it yes. cuts uh, it to become a satellite in orbit. Um uh, Jim says that it had a bit more context than what's obvious. When Siskel and Ebert talked about 2001, one of them made mention that the satellite is a space missile platform pointing back down to Earth. It represents more than just several million years of man's progress. It's several million years in man's progress to kill one another since the bone was also, of course, used as a weapon. A weapon yeah, that's a good point. 
Um, then also one more point that uh, that Jim makes, quote, as for the star child at the end, I read the book years ago in school. I'm going on memory alone since I don't have a copy, but I recall that the final lines are something like, Bowman looked down at the earth. He didn't know what he was going to do with it, but he was sure he would think of something. I have looked up the end of the book, and, and Jim, you are very close. That is almost exactly what it says at the very end. So Bowman as the star child, as sort of having ascended to this strange godlike form by with by way of you know alien transmutation, uh, he shows up transmogrified. He's a star child. He's in orbit, and he looks down, and he's going to do something with Earth. And that's that's a lot of ambiguity. The same kind of ambiguity we get at the end of the movie. Like, does he have nefarious intentions, good intentions? Does he want to help Earth? Does yeah. he want to destroy it? Yeah. Is he a savior? Is he a destroyer? Uh, how <laughs> how much difference is there between the two? All right. We have one last listener mail here. and uh, I know which one you're going to pick, <laughs> Yes. It's the Highlander one. Uh, <laughs> this one comes to us from Elizabeth. Dear Stuff to Blow Your Mind hosts and team, Thank you very much for your show. It is a joy to hear uh, about unsettling Boltzmann brains and bloodthirsty scugs while walking my dog here in Paris. I've been listening to and enjoying your show for a few months now, and I noticed many references to Highlander, the movie. Earlier this summer, you mused about Highlander-style immortality. Immortality is a form of immutability. In the movie, Connor McCloud and the other immortals are trapped in time, unable to evolve. They're immortal, therefore outside life. Very interesting. Do you know that uh, there also was a Highlander TV show? Uh, yes, <laughs> I am aware. Uh, I, have, I have to say, I, I did watch... I watched a fair amount of it, but I didn't watch it, like, religiously. So I was never, like, really privy to the overarching uh, narratives that were going on there. I would just, like, tune in, and occasionally there would be a fun episode in which, um, you know, they kind of go through the typical um, uh, motions of the show where McCloud encounters a Highlander from the past. There's a, there's a flashback as to how they know each other, and then there's a big standoff and, and, uh, and so forth. Now, I have to sadly assume that Christophe Lambert is not in the TV show. Uh, I believe he's in the first episode at oh. least. I, if, I, and the thing is I, I never actually saw the first episode, but I believe based on subsequent research that he did show up in the pilot to set up their relationship. Anyway, uh, she says, do you know that there was also a Highlander TV show where a major development arc was actually about the the possibility slash impossibility of change for immortals? Hmm. And this I did not realize. She says, quote, the, air, the show aired in the late 90s in France. Don't know about the U.S. Uh, it, it, yeah, it, it did. Uh, this was, I think it aired exclusively in syndication. So this was the kind of thing that I would watch like uh, – I think it would come on like – like, four in the afternoon on a Saturday or come on at like 10 at night on some random channel. Mm -hmm. Uh, She continues, its protagonist, Duncan McCloud, Connor's better looking and younger cousin, (laughs) started off as this uh, archetypical immortal Boy Scout hero set in stone and settling scores with baddies that were uh, as stuck in the past as he was. However, the show couldn't follow this pattern indefinitely since we, the viewers, are, of course, children of time. So it became all about how Duncan needed to change and break his black and white vision of the world. It was hard for him, and he didn't like it. Uh, was forced to ev- he was forced to evolve uh, by uh, interesting side characters. In the end, after a few seasons, he got there, only to become this faded-out version of himself, almost losing the will to live and fight another day. Having lost his trademark identity, he resolved to leave the game and thus the show ended. Sorry for the long message, but I really enjoyed hearing about your thoughts on identity and immortality, and I'm delighted about the ongoing challenge of watching the Highlander movie a few minutes at a time. (laughs) 
couldn't resist telling you about the, the TV show in case you didn't know about it. Again, uh, merci for your show, Best Elizabeth. Well, I didn't think I'd ever be tempted to go back and watch the Highlander TV series. Now I am a little bit, a little I, bit. Yeah, this gives me renewed respect for it. I mean, I I know loosely that they do end up adding a lot of elements later on. Like there's this whole thing with the Watchers, who I think are just mortals who watch the immortals. Um, <laughs> like this, you know, they but it went multiple seasons, so they had to add more elements. They had know? to have like Highlander administrators. Yeah, you couldn't just have follow the Kurgan of the week model indefinitely. <laughs> uh, though that hasn't stopped the movie series post Highlander 2 because I think that's basically what they've done. Um, How many movies are there after Highlander 2? Something like three or four? I'm wow. not sure. I only saw up to three. Those of you out there who think we've forgotten that we've promised on the show before to one day do a Highlander 2 The Quickening Science Of episode, we have not forgotten. That will happen in That's the future. Right. It is a guarantee. In fact, I, I finally finished watching the first Highlander uh, like three minutes at a time. Uh, so that one's done. I'm ready to, to re-watch Highlander 2 in its original theatrical glory. Uh, and then we'll uh, we'll pick it up from there. Highlander 2 remains one of the best bad movies of all time. <laughs> it is bad movie sorcery. It is transcendent. <laughs> your soul will leave your body. And flash around the room and, uh, and bolts of lightning. Yeah. All right. We'll look to that. I, I think at this rate, it's probably going to be November before we get that out because we got our, our, uh, our Halloween content. But I'm hopeful for November. Let, let's make a date. It's got to happen. <laughs> all right. So I think we're going to leave it off there. The uh, the robots are tired. I think they want to embrace each other and uh, swap their parts around. So that now we'll have just two, uh, we'll have two new new slash old uh, Carney the mailbots running around. Both of them made out of a combination of new and old parts. Uh, and then they'll probably ask for replacements, request more parts. This is just going to get out of control. We're going to have three carnies, and we're going to have four carnies. Uh, it's, we'll, we'll pick that up another day. Uh, in the meantime, if you want to get in touch with us, uh, you want to find out more about what we do, you want to listen to more episodes of the podcast, head on over to StuffToBlowYourMind.com. That is the mothership. That's where you'll find all the episodes. You'll find links out to our social media accounts. You'll find that tab for the store. Uh, yeah, it's a great place. Go check it out. Huge thanks, as always, to our wonderful audio producers, Alex Williams and Tari Harrison. If you would like to get in touch with us directly to let us know feedback on this episode or any other, to send us listener mail of your own, uh, to suggest a topic for the future, just to say hi, you can email us at blowthemind at howstuffworks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com.